there, good day everyone, and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you, and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So, welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. I've been talking about the census the last couple of weeks, and particularly about the declining religiosity of Australians. Now here's a little bit, a snippet from an article, which was in last week's Age, or as the bagman calls it, the Harvey Norman catalogue. But this was written in the faith section, Did you know the age had a faith section? Anyhow, Barney Sports wrote this. There are two clear points. First, the vast majority of those leaving were not committed believers, but had a merely cultural attachment. They might have gone to Sunday school or remembered the faith of their grandparents. As this cultural accretion falls away, numbers will drop further. But core Christianity continues. (laughs) Well, there we go. The numbers are dropping, but the core remains. Okay, part of that is true, of course. There are a number of people who call themselves Anglican or Catholic and never attend any services, and they don't contribute anything to the church they claim to be a part of. So, when only the core remains... There's going to be more and more pressure on governments, state and federal, to stop handing over billions of dollars to the churches while the number of their followers decreases. Things like state aid to their schools, not paying council rates on their billion-dollar properties, not paying fringe benefit taxes, not paying GST and not paying any tax on their approximately $30 annual income. The days of the churches are numbered, and they know it too. Hence the reference to, Numbers will drop further, but core Christianity continues. I wonder what number of followers constitutes a core. Well, I'm not in the core, and I don't think you are either, listener. I'm a humanist.
I will just reiterate, tell you again what humanism is. And I will use the Amsterdam Declaration of 2002. Humanism is the outcome of a long tradition of free thought that inspired many of the world's great thinkers and creative artists and gave rise to science itself. Humanism is ethical and rational and supports democracy and human rights. It also insists that personal liberty must be combined with social responsibility. Humanism is a response to the widespread demand for an alternative to dogma and religion. It values artistic creativity and imagination. Humanism is a way of life that brings meaning and fulfilment. By utilising free inquiry, the power of science and creative imagination for the furtherance of peace and in the service of compassion, humanists have confidence that human beings have the means to solve the problems that confront us all. 3CR Well, let's move away from those who say they're being persecuted for being Christians, that Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet, that no one ever talks about the deadly and widespread scourge of Christophobia. Winter has always had the remarkable ability to frost over the remaining brain cells of the climate denialists, particularly at the Murdoch Press. The existence of the season seems to confound them. It's cold. Didn't you say the planet was warming? The Daily Telegraph, which is New South Wales' Murdoch Bloyd, and a cudgel to the brain stem of any creature forced to read it, the Daily Telegraph claims that Australia's epic and early snow season had arrived, despite dire global warming predictions of vanishing snow. Alarm has given big chill. This pseudo-idea that because it's cold in winter, you know, it generally is cold in winter, listener, it's generally the coldest of all the seasons, so therefore the climate crisis must not exist our record hot summers, our many once-in-a-lifetime fires and floods only exist if you're capable of recalling memories. Sky News' Chris Kenny took this theme, and there's a dangerous and disingenuous chap, even further. He blamed Australia's energy crisis not on multinational companies shipping more gas overseas than they hold in reserve for domestic use, but on Australia's pitiful attempts at greening its energy sector. Apparently, the problem facing us is too much action on climate change. Too much. Who knew? And listener, just by the way, Sky News was recently singled out by the UK think tank, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, as a global super spreader of climate misinformation. In February... All member governments of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change accepted a resolution stating that the rhetoric of Sky News came from vested economic and political interests and undermines climate science and has driven public misperception of climate risks and polarised public support for climate actions. So essentially, to solve the climate crisis we must also tackle the Murdoch crisis. 
And I have a little historical piece about Murdoch, and I'll play that for you shortly. But first of all, a musical break, or as the bagman calls it, a musical interlude. listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Let's hear about Rupert Murdoch. Here is an old BBC recording of the rise and rise and rise of the media mogul. Do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. In 1968, Rupert Murdoch arrived in London to negotiate the purchase of the News of the World, seeing off his only real rival, Robert Maxwell. And within a year, he'd acquired and shortly after relaunched The Sun. Murdoch was here to stay, and he was determined to alter the character of British journalism. Few would doubt that Murdoch is a newspaper man. It's in his blood. His father, Keith Murdoch, was a war correspondent and following his death in 1952, the 21-year-old Rupert left his sub-editor's job at the Daily Express in London to run the family business back in Australia. So began a pattern for Murdoch's career. Hostile takeovers, rapid expansion, bold risk-taking and a hands-on approach to running his business. 
You don't delegate very well, I'm told. You take decisions at a very minor level, deciding what programs should go on a television service, this sort of stuff. I delegate enormously. I have to. There aren't enough hours in the day to run everything. Uh, I delegate everything. But when I'm around, I interfere a bit too much. It didn't take Murdoch long to make himself an enemy of the British establishment, printing Gosby's stories and notoriously digging up ten-year-old dirt with the publication of Christine Keeler's diaries in 1972. But circulation figures of both his UK titles were promising, and the very nature of the popular press seemed to be evolving under his direction. Let's see what's happening in The Star this week. First, Glenn and Sarah Campbell talk about his unreleased record, Sarah's Song, and The Star prints all its lyrics for you. Then the latest on Kojak, King Kong's girlfriend, Clark Gable's son, and Rosalind Carter's second-hand inaugural gown. In 1973, Murdoch left Britain, turning his attention to the United States. He soon founded the supermarket tabloid The Star, and later purchased the New York Post. But at the start of the 1980s, perhaps sensing a natural political ally in the newly elected Margaret Thatcher, Murdoch returned to Britain to launch a bid for the ailing Times and Sunday Times. I don't believe that the people who read the Times are any better than the people who read the Sun. I just believe they're different. But do you... I'm very proud of the Sun. On the face of it, this is the establishment's worst nightmare. One of the pillars of British conservatism, run by a man known only for his populist approach. But the alternative was the very real prospect of the Times and Sunday Times falling out of business completely. Obviously, you will wonder what my plans are for the papers. Whatever proposals for progress may be developed, there will be no fundamental change in the characteristics. I am not seeking to acquire these papers in order to change them into something entirely different. Having successfully altered the character of the popular press in Britain, Murdoch set his sights on the industry itself, instigating an audacious shift from his printing plant in Fleet Street to a state-of-the-art facility in Wapping in East London. The new plant was built and developed under a shroud of secrecy and fired into operation when a Fleet Street strike was called in January 1986. Redundancy notices on the printers were served and the so-called Battle of Wapping began. The Wapping dispute has produced some of the worst scenes of violence since the miners' strike. Hundreds of demonstrators and policemen have been injured as, each Saturday, the streets around the plant are turned into a battleground. This is industrial relations, Rupert Murdoch style, but it has great implications for all groups of workers. The strike lasted a year, and the fallout broke the back of the Fleet Street trade unions, who were forced to fall into line with Murdoch's working practices and relocate. But by this time, Murdoch had already moved on, setting his sights firmly on the advent of satellite television. Five, four, three, two, one, one. By the end of the 1980s, Murdoch had the bit between his teeth. He purchased 20th Century Fox in America in 1984 and launched the Fox Broadcasting Company the following year. His plans for satellite broadcasting in Britain, meanwhile, had the media establishment reeling. What I... uh get quite angry about with him and his newspapers is the way they continually knock what has gone before and there was more of that today he dismissed drama and sport and comedy I mean he's probably never seen bread or any fools and horses Sky's losses nearly bankrupted him and he was forced to merge with British Satellite Broadcasting to form B-Sky-B. B-Sky-B then staked everything on the newly formed Football Premier League. This bold and ultimately successful move coincided with a shift in thinking in the Labour Party, 
who were about to concede a good deal of ground to make themselves electable. Old Labour became New Labour. Tony Blair paid court to Rupert Murdoch. And for the first time in decades, Murdoch titles began giving their backing to the Labour Party. Mr Murdoch, how would you describe your relationship with Tony Blair? I'm a supporter. Rupert Murdoch has always maintained he does not subscribe to one political ideology, but his free market, anti-union, anti-establishment and pro-consumer choice stance places him firmly in the party of individual interest. He's cunning, ruthless, single-minded, perhaps even brilliant, but he's also ageing. As the 90s became the noughties, Murdoch finally began to open the door to his potential successors. First his eldest son, Lachlan, then younger son, James. You're familiar with the word mafia? Yes, Mr Watson? Mr Murdoch, you must be the first mafia boss in history you didn't know he was running a criminal enterprise. Mr Watson, please. I think that's inappropriate. Mr Chairman. We've just finished our meal and we're just going home, so... So what have we seen with the revelations of phone hacking? An organisation with a swollen sense of power and entitlement that has allowed itself to disregard any sense of moral responsibility. The anti-establishment establishment thinks it can do what it wants. Or just an overpowerful company left to graze by its ageing monarch, overreaching and let down by successors charged with its care. The Leveson inquiry and the scandal of phone hacking will rumble on, as will News Corporation. The question on Wednesday is whether this is the moment that Rupert Murdoch finds a way to start a fight back. As for my comments, Mr Chairman, and my statement, which I believe was around the closure uh, of the News of the World newspaper... Before you get to that, I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. Uh, Good morning. You're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. We got a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work to do Forget about your women and that water can Today you're working for the man Well, pick up your feet, we got a deadline to meet
And by popular demand, we bring you some more working class poetry from Comrade Natasha. Workplace Carnage On the 28th of April, all honour our fallen comrades. For Anzac Day, for May Day, for I'm Sorry Day. The bottom line for a worker is death. But the worst sentence is permanent disability, pain and disease, or near-death experiences that last the rest of a worker's life. Ask a first aider on site, or the rep who has to take charge of a shed of shocked and angry workers, when a fellow worker, who could just as easily have been in his place, at that time, of an instant fatal fall, or under a falling load, crushing his body out of all recognition, dies. Pitting himself against the plant and trying to respect his body's relationship to machinery and the force of gravity. What have been the consequences of plant deregulation? What have been the consequences of labour deregulation? What have been the consequences of the privatisation of public utilities and infrastructure? For every person who dies on the road, five people die in the workplace. And when I read the blue and yellow sign that says City Link Toll, I remember Justin O'Connor. So... I want to share a day of mourning with my comrades who have survived. To remember as one big union in the streets, in honour, our fallen comrades. April the 28th is the International Day of Mourning Workplace Deaths. 60% of fatalities relate directly to plant. After four years of plant deregulation, what state of maintenance and repair is planned in? Who is responsible? Who pays? Workplace deaths confront every one of us. Till death, us do part. Every week, 50 people in Australia will die as a result of their work. And that doesn't include the near-death experiences that building workers tell you about. How they survived and how it taught them to respect the plant, the materials, the site, other workers, gravity, but most importantly, themselves. To show respect for your own health and safety on the job as a mark of the respect you show the fallen comrades who have not died in vain. People say that no single workplace death should have been in vain, nor should those workers who have fallen in war when they are expected to give up their life for their country. But who has the right to expect any of us to give up our life for a job? Every time another worker stands up in the workplace, putting the letter of the law of the land into place by refusing to work in an unsafe environment, 
placing that worker or another at risk, challenging every official authority to back up the law with action and calling on every other worker to do the same. Then our eyes are opened by the morning. What lessons have we learnt from the death of Justin O'Connor? What lessons have we learnt from the death of Mark Allen? What lessons have we learnt from the Longford gas explosion? The truth that could be commissioned into a real investigation into those two deaths would uncover more corruption in industry, which has led to authority collaborating by withdrawing the legal right of workers to come home from work in the same condition they left. Every single person in the workplace faces this negation of basic rights in the name of profit, for the benefit of greed. Do you have to give up your life for your job? Every single worker is part of April 28th. We all take part in this sorry day. An injury to one is an injury to all. Whether as a black or white, new or old Australian, whether in war or whether in the workplace, we have all fallen comrades to mourn. We demonstrate to the public what the workplace toll means to us and to them, to open their eyes to what is really happening behind those hoardings on the housing development site in the suburbs, on the freeway extensions, the shopfront refurbs, the industrial park sites, the docklands or the house up the road getting a rewiring job. These are all workplaces. How many eyes are really open to the working environment? To focus all the eyes of the public on the workplace to open them and turn them on the Kennett and Howard governments on April 28th, all honour our fallen comrades. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. And another popular demand, here's a story from Glenn about socialist television producers and an old TV favourite of mine from my childhood. Well, good morning again, Glenn. How are you, my dear? I'm terrific. Do you recall the old days when TV first arrived on Australian shores? The old. The old days when we first had TV in Australia. I do remember when we first had TV in Australia, yeah, because we had the first TV in my street. Did you know? And I had a lot of new friends that year. You would have. They came around to watch the test pattern with me. <laughs> the test pattern was a favourite all around Melbourne. And the TV was, wasn't on from three o'clock till somewhere. Other, but there was a titty show on ABC and we'd watch the test pattern, which was a red Indian with a wall bonnet. Oh. Until... You got that five, four, three, two, one or something. And then the kiddies show. But epilogue closed for day. Epilogue yes. Epilogue came on at midnight till it did. 8 a.m. or so. Goodness. And there was a six o'clock news on 
There was Eric Nine, Pierce I on think, Nine, I recall. But followed by, there's a coming under your bed. He was on Sunday mornings when I remember him. But he was after the news. He was on Sunday mornings for the wrestling on Channel 9. Uh, what was your favourite show when you were a kitty? The ABC Children's Show. Did you watch um, Did you watch Robin Hood? Riding through the Glen. That's the one. Robin Hood with his band of men, feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood. Yes, I liked Robin Hood. Do you know who made that series? Do you know the history of that series? History of the series? No. No, they were made in the UK by Sapphire Films. And Sapphire Films was set up in the UK by a woman called Hannah Weinstein. And she was an American communist. Yeah. She left America in the late 40s, the Cold War, and the House of Un-American Activities Committee being established. Oh, yeah. And she got away from America. She went to Paris, then to England, and the American Communist Party, the Hollywood branch, gave her money to make films. And one of the most famous series Sapphire films made was Robin Hood. Oh, right. Feared by the bad, loved by the good, robbed the rich... To feed the poor. They also made films like William Tell as well. They made a whole lot of those adventure films. And um, what um, what uh, Hannah Weinstein did, she got a hold of script writers and stuff in the US who were blacklisted, who had lost their passports. And they were stuck in LA, Washington, New York. And she got them to write on pseudonyms and paid them money for doing the scripts of these stories because they, they couldn't find work back in the US. Yeah. She created work in the UK for them by Robin Hood and these sort of shows. And um, we don't hear about Hannah Weinstein or her work, do we? William Tell. That's right, Hannah Weinstein and William Tell. Sapphire Films made a series of programs from the early 50s to the early 60s. And I think the two most famous I remember are Robin Hood and William Tell. And Hannah Weinstein was the producer. She was the brains behind it. William Tell was a revolutionary, wasn't he? That's right. But he's mainly remembered for shooting an apple off someone's head. Mm. Well, if you were Robin Hood, the uh, the rich the rich were very uh, self serving and they sort of acolytes sort of crawlers like the food chain and uh, the robbers the Robin Hood band I mean they were merry men and they fought the good fight against oppression and injustice and Robin Hood was a, a, a metaphor for fighting the good fight which you couldn't obviously say in the US could you or the UK or Australia they had a wise of these black band writers producing wonderful kids shows like Robin Hood and William Tell to to throw our attention to offensive, so to get us injustice and to fight against oppression. I can't remember the actor's name. Uh, I think, if my memory is right, Richard Green. Richard Green, of course, it was Richard Green. He was the one. And another support of her, have you heard of Christina Steed? Christina Steed, no. She was an Australian novelist. She was um, a contemporary of Jean Devaney, uh, Catherine Susanna Pritchard. Uh, Christina Steed wasn't a, a Communist Party member. She was a fellow traveller, but she wrote a lot of work also for Sapphire Films with Hannah Weinstein. And again, you've never heard of Hannah Weinstein and Christina Steed. They've written out about history of these people. We don't hear their stories. And that's why in the past, this segment's been called Our Story, Their Story, Your Story, His Story, Her Story. And we've forgotten these names. And they're part of our struggle. So Hannah Weinstein, Christina Steed, they were great thinkers for our cause. They're fighting depression and injustice. And again, where else up in three shall we hear these people are being mentioned? 
Well, I'll certainly remember their names in future. Hannah Weinstein and Christina Steed. Christina is, of course, Australian, you said. She was, she was from Sydney. She, um, she went to Paris in the 1930s. She uh, spent, oh, time, luck. spent time in, in Spain in the Civil War. Um, she married Jack Blake, the communist. Um, then she was banned from returning to Australia. And she, uh, it was an award she lost. It was an award she should have received for her literary work. But because she wasn't in Australia, she wasn't eligible to get it. You know how they stole, um, who was the famous filmmaker who lost his, um, Wolfie Birchall? You know how they stole his passport? Yes, yes. Similar to her, they didn't steal her passport, they said, oh, basically, you're not straight, so you won the award, but you're not here, so you're not going to get it. So it had ways of, you know, the blacklists in the US weren't in the US alone. The blacklists occurred here too. It's a bit like Christina Steed and various others who, following suppression, had to pay a penalty. But they're important names for us to know. It's worrying, though, Glenn, because that, Attitude towards journalists is here again. I suppose it never went away, but it was hidden and couldn't really come out and run rampant. Now I see journalists, good journalists, being sneered at, derided and sued. Not just being sued, but being threatened also. We're seeing the rise of these, these fascist mobs and um, Journalists and television crews being threatened and assaulted at these rallies, these, these gatherings of the Dunning Kruger Nazis. And um, yeah. I mean, we're living in scary times. And I suppose people like Christina Steed went through and um, Hannah Weinstein and the blacklisted rise in the US. It might happen again. And um, yeah, we've got some very unpleasant things happening in the world, my dear. Well, thank you for reminding me or actually letting me know about these, these producers, these. Heroes. No, we're heroes. I said, and they use shows like Robin Hood, William Tell, to show how to fight oppression, but it's, it's real. But yeah, and the powers of rules, they're not wonderful people. They're slippery, sleazy characters. And these shows expose them in a, in a way which you can enjoy and appreciate. So, um, yeah, listeners, if you weren't tuned to 3 South today, you wouldn't know these stories. And you're listening here to Business Journal Duffy's Left After Breakfast. I'm Glenn, and um. I do a history segment on Susan's show, which is on Radio 3CR, 855 AM. And until I return, in the words of my forebears, Shakula. Robin Hood, Robin Hood. 
Robin Hood with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green. They vowed to help the people of the king. They handled all the trouble on the English country scene and still found plenty of time to sing. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. Well, good morning, Bagman, and how are you today? Good morning, Susan. I'm hale and hearty, and I'm as bright as rain. And to put a finer point on it, I'm as strong as a horse. I'm the best I've felt in many a long year. Well, that's great news. It is great news, isn't it, Susan? Although the world is falling down around us, just to put a finer point on it, can you believe, can you believe, have you ever been to Bunnings? Well, you, when you go to Bunnings, you can buy a sausage. And they only cost you $2.50 to help a local charity or whatever. Can you believe that the Bunnings sausages are about to go from $2.50 to $3.50? That's the parlous state of affairs in this country. It's almost as shocking as the time that I remember so well when ice creams went up. Now, they used to be threepence for a cone and they went up to fourpence halfpenny. That's 50%, 50% increase. I've never forgotten that and I've never forgiven. Right. And you've got to take into account that they would have to justify going from $2.50 to $3.50 because I know... My local butcher, has, he puts sawdust in the middle of his sausages because he can't make ends meet. Well, couldn't he turn the sausage round to make a circle like those African sausages? <laughs> well, obviously, you didn't get the joke, Susan. Think about it. I don't think it's sawdust they put in there. No, the, well, they call them mystery bags because no one is really aware of what goes into a sausage. True. Anyway, all jokes aside, Susan, I am very, very disappointed. I am disappointed at the federal government. I'm more disappointed at the state Labor government who have just refused to mandate the wearing of masks in shops, supermarkets and whatever You and me and everybody listening to this program, we went for three years, sometimes in the longest lockdown that you you can imagine, but we paid by the rules. And paying by the rules meant that we would come out at the end of three years or so, having defeated COVID-19, the deadly virus that's killing thousands of people a week in this country. I'm disappointed because the health minister, Marianne Thomas, who happens to be a friend of mine, refused to mandate masks in public areas. 
Now, I'm very, very disappointed at that because we have to ask, who won this war against COVID? Was it the medical fraternity? Was the nurses, the hospital staff, the doctors? No, it wasn't. The ones that won this war against the COVID virus were the cut lunch commandos, the anti-vaxxers, freedom fighters, and the people that went on and assaulted frontline troops in this state. Every government is now afraid of mandating anything because they feel in an election year that people will come back and march on the streets. Is that what they're afraid of? Be the only thing that they're afraid of, Susan. And you take into account those people that march on the streets that spat on nurses, assaulted doctors in hospitals, are the ones that won the war against COVID and won the war against being vaccinated. I hate to say it, but it's true. So what we're doing is we're not concerned about the incredibly high rate. Actually, it's quite frightening, the rate of COVID deaths here in Australia. But we're going to kowtow to the business community, to the great God economy. Yeah, the great God Menon. It's true that the large businesses and small businesses have a shocking reputation, especially in the hotel and restaurant industry, of robbing workers, yet the government is falling over itself in order to appease these small business and big business businesses. I'm very, very disappointed, and I can't say it too many times, Susan, because, as I've said on many occasions, dead is the new normal as far as COVID is concerned. And we're also not going to have the free rapid antigen tests at the end of this month. That's right, Susan. That's a decision made by the Labor government. I would have thought that the Labor government would be more interested in saving lives and making lives a lot better for working people, the elderly, and the medically compromised than they are at the moment. But let's hope, let's hope they may turn that decision around. The corporate elite who actually make these laws, well, they, um, they're into that let it rip strategy. They're condemning us all to ongoing and worsening waves of infection and illness and death because they simply don't care as long as it's not allowed to interfere with profits. Don't they understand that sick people, much less dead people, don't buy things? We don't go out and eat anymore because we're dead. We don't make profits for them anymore because we're dead. Haven't they woken up to that one yet? Well, they should realise it, Susan, that dead people don't vote either. People in ICU don't vote either because they probably go on to die. But you notice a couple of work cover cases this week have been instigated against aged people's homes for allowing people to die on their premises and take into account not the state government, the federal government. So every person that died during those three years in a aged care facilities, the federal government has a lot to answer for. 
But this is a homicidal agenda, not mandating masks. Absolutely, Susan. Now, I, I broke out this morning and actually went for a ride on the train and I was surprised at the amount of people who don't wear a mask on a train. But when I was exiting the station at Flinders Street, I was asked to show my ticket or asked to show my Mikey card if only those people were on the trains advocating people to wear masks and finding them if they're not wearing them. Well, I thought we had to. There were signs up all over the train saying you must wear a mask at all times. If you ride on the train and you haven't got a valid Mikey ticket, you will cop a massive fine. If you're not wearing a mask, you would probably get a slap over the ankles with a wet tram ticket. Oh, bag man, we don't have <laughs> we don't have tram tickets anymore. Okay, Susan. Well, it should happen. It should happen. Maybe a wet lettuce leaf. We can't afford them either. We yeah. really have to take our own health into our own hands. You know that? We have to fight for a society in which health and lives are no longer subordinated to the profit interests of the very wealthy buggers up there. Well, unfortunately, Susan, a lot of people feel that they're immune to both COVID and also the influenza blocking up our hospitals at the moment. Now, I, I should say something here. You know, they're saying that the ambulance service is totally overrun, is not working properly, and you hear Matthew Guy and that Georgie, whatever her name is, from the Liberal Party. The reason why the ambulance service is not running properly are not running efficiently is because there are thousands and thousands of people overworking the system, coming down with COVID. They're lining up in the ward, in the hospitals. That's the reason why the ambulance service is not coping at the moment, because people are not being vaccinated or people are too lazy or too dumb to wear a face mask there was some good news this week, Susan. A bloke who has spent the last 22 years in our prison system for supposedly or allegedly uh, murdering two policemen has been found not guilty. And I hope he will seek proper compensation because no matter how the system works, 12 good men and women have found this person not guilty on appeal, and therefore he is not guilty for or ever and the day. Now, the police are bitterly disappointed, but that's our system. The police, from this point on, should not falsify evidence, as was in Jason Roberts' case. Bagman, you're not suggesting that the police fabricated evidence or falsified evidence, are you? Uh, that came out in the appeal of uh, Jason Roberts that uh, police falsified evidence and um, gave different evidence to what was first initiated. Susan, I remember going back when I was a 13-year-old boy and I wasn't the best-behaved young lad, I must admit, but I got taken to the St Kilda Police Station as a 13-year-old. Yeah, St Kilda oh, Police right. Station. That's where, they, that's where they used to hide all the guns. Um, yeah. That's right. I was not given an independent third person. 
I was verbal by two senior detectives at the age of 13 and I refused to sign the record of interview because I said to the two detectives, that's not my interview, I didn't say it. You two are concocted between yourself and, you know, you're done when you're 13 years old. So they said to me, look, son, we understand that, but could you do us a favour? <laughs> we made a couple of typing mistakes when we were putting your words in. Could you just initial those mistakes uh. as a 13 year old? What do you do? I wanted to get out of the police station. So when I eventually went to court as a 13 year old, I said to the judge, You wake up my lawyer, say to the judge, I didn't make that statement. The judge said, did you initial those mistakes, son? I said, yes. He said, well, you may as well have signed it. And I find you guilty. Ah, well, we live and learn. Um, now, Susan, the last couple of weeks have been good for music. You've been citing some great music for me. Maybe this week we could have a, a musical interlude also? If you ask me nicely. Why wouldn't I ask you nicely, Susan? I've been so nice to you for the last 30 Five years on every Friday morning. Oh, uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm not too sure of the time, Susan, but we can do the old thing. You can look out the window at the, the Collingwood clock. I can. I just want to say, when I look at my window, I can see my new garden gnome. Well, you've got a garden gnome. You're rich. A new one. A new one. Wearing uh, a black and white sweater. Oh, my God. Well... That just about says it all. So, Susan, with the musical interlude coming up, uh, should we go out in the same old way? Why not? Dead struggle. Dead you win. If you don't, fight. You lose. Good morning from left after breakfast. Always do two or three for the working man, but this is really the working man song, one called the Working Man Blues. It's a big job getting by with nine kids and a wife. Yeah, but I've been a working man, dang near all my life, and I'll keep on working. As long as my two hands have been to use. That evening and sang a little bit of this working man blues. Well, I keep my nose on the grindstone, work hard every day. I might get a little tired on the weekend after I draw my pay, but I go back working. Come Monday morning, I'm right back with the crew.
episode. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. <laughs>